Well, as always, church, it's good to be with you. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tyler David. I'm the downtown AM campus pastor, one of our preaching pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone. If you've been here for a while, you're wondering, Tyler, something's different about you. Um, you're looking at me, you're like, something's off. Your new shirt, not it, only have three. Um, you wear the shirt all the time. So I actually just got LASIK. And so I, I sure, um, somebody paid for it for me. It's how I can afford it if you're judging me, just so you know. Um, but I want you guys, just so you guys wonder, if you see me like trying to do this to my face and pull my glasses up, and, or I don't know with my hands, that's why. Um, trying to adjust to not having glasses. So personal, my personal announcement for the week. Okay, we're going to be in the book of Exodus. Going to be in the book of Exodus. See if a Bible go and open up there to Exodus 15. Exodus 15. We're continuing on the book of Exodus, a sermon series we've been in for quite some time. We're kind of, we started back up last week. And last week we saw the story of God setting his people free, finally. Last week we saw the parting of the Red Sea. We got to see finally all that God had been promising, all that God had been saying he would do for his people. He finally does it, the parting of the Red Sea and destroying the enemies of the people of God. He, he shows himself to be all that he had promised to be. He shows them, I'm all that I promised to be, and he shows them in dramatic fashion. And so we're going to read today in Exodus that after the sea has been parted and after the sea has fallen on top of their enemies, Moses and Israel are sitting there looking at the calm Red Sea now. It's covering their enemies, and we're going to see them sing a song. That their response to this is going to be to sing a song. Look at Exodus 15, 1 through 3. 1 through 3. It says, Then Moses... And the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So this is the very first worship song of Israel. It's the very first worship song of Israel. And there's 15 more verses in this song we'll get into a little bit later. And there's so many incredible lines in this song. But one of the interesting things about this song is there's a recurring theme in it. There's a recurring theme in this song, and it's about the destruction of their enemies. Most of the song is them singing about the death of their oppressors. And so when you read this text, and we'll read more in a minute, it can be hard to resonate with this psalm, because not many of us have enemies that if they died, we would start singing. Not many of you have enemies that if you're at their funerals, hey, everybody, I have a song I like to sing. It's a pretty happy one, because I'm excited. Like, I, you shouldn't do that, by the way. You feel the urge? Deny that, okay? Not many of us have enemies like that. Now, sadly, there are people in this world who are enslaved and, in, and under oppression and such evil that they would resonate more with this song of God destroyed their enemies. But we have a hard time because we may have people we don't like or people we disagree with, but none of us probably have enemies that would cause us to sing if they died. But the reason we're looking at this text, the reason this text is in the Bible is because you actually do have enemies. A couple weeks ago, we talked about loving our enemies, our human enemies, our human adversaries, but actually you have enemies much greater than that. You have enemies much greater than any human being or human adversary. You have enemies that no government can fix, no politician or policy can fix. You have enemies that infiltrate every single so social system, enemies that infiltrate every boundary. 
You have real, every human being, whether you're in this room and you know Jesus or not, every human being has enemies that want to oppress and enslave you. You have enemies that want to keep you from life in God and they want to keep you in shame and fear. Enemies that want to keep you from flourishing. Enemies that want to keep you from being fully human. And these enemies of yours and mine sin, Satan, and death. Those are your greatest enemies. You may not have thought about them in that way, but when the Bible talks about your enemies, it doesn't talk about people. It talks about sin, Satan, and death. That these are enemies that we are powerless to overcome by ourselves. They're real enemies, and we're powerless to overcome them by ourselves. And they want, sin, Satan, and death, want to keep you enslaved to shame and fear. They want to keep you enslaved to shame and fear. Now, of these three enemies, sin, Satan, and death, the one I probably don't need to spend most time on because we feel it probably more as an enemy than the others is death. We've all seen death. We all know how miserable it is. We all know how terrible it is. We've seen it gobble up people that we love. We've seen that death doesn't care about status or workout regimen or diet or money. It doesn't care. It doesn't discriminate against anybody. We've seen death destroy people we love. We've seen that. It's an enemy of yours. Death is an enemy. Don't ever get so naturalistic. You see, death is just a thing that is natural. It's not natural for human beings. They weren't supposed to die. Death is an enemy. And this enemy wants to keep you enslaved to fear. Death wants to throw out threats to you and say, you should be fearful of me. And it keeps you in fear. The other two enemies of sin and Satan are just as real as death. But because we have spiritually dull eyes, we don't see them and feel them the way we feel death. We feel death. You see it. You see somebody die, you feel it. But with sin and Satan, we don't feel it as much because it's more spiritual in nature. They're invisible in nature, and so you can't see them necessarily, but they're just as real. Death came into the world because of our sin and Satan's temptations. And when I say sin and Satan, let me just clarify really quickly what I mean. Sin, what I mean by sin is any thought, attitude, action, or feeling that's contrary to God's word. Thought, attitude, action, or feeling that's contrary to God's word. And Satan's a spiritual being who just tempts you to do those things. That's sin and Satan. And here's what they do. Not only do they bring death into your world, but also they bring shame into your world. Because even though you and I lost God a long time ago in the garden, we lost him a long time ago. Here's what's fascinating about human beings, you still know deep down you're supposed to be with them. Like deep down, human beings know I'm supposed to be with them. His way should be my way. His character should be my character. His joy should be my joy. We know we're made for him, but we rejected and we thought, no, I can find life away from him and his created things. And so what happens is shame floods your guilty conscience. Shame floods your guilty conscience because you know I should be with God, but I've rejected him. We forsake him and we know shame all too well. We become ashamed of the things we've done. We become ashamed of the things done to us. We become ashamed over who we have become. And so much of your life and my life is spent trying to get rid of, to make sense of, to eradicate, to get away from the shame we feel and the death we fear. 
So much of our busyness is about getting away from those voices in our mind that tell us we have shame and tell us that we're scared. Now, our enemies are not Pharaoh and Egypt, but Moses and Israel singing over their destruction is going to show you how you respond when God destroys your enemies. Their song is going to show you, show me, that when you see God destroy your greatest enemies, it does something inside of you. Something inside of you begins to stir when you see it. And then songs begin to flow out of that. They're going to be a model for you today. When you look at the text, they're going to be a model for you. This is what people do when they're set free from enemies to worship God. This is what they do. So I want to read to you this text again. We didn't read it earlier. I want to read to you the part that they are singing over God, destroying people. They're singing over God, destroying their enemies. Look at Exodus 15, verse 3. Verse 3 says, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. They're singing this. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in mighty waters. They're in awe of their salvation. They're in awe of their salvation partly because it's not theoretical. Like they're in awe that it's not theoretical. It's not just that their enemies, their enemies are gonna be, they're gonna be free from them in their minds. It's not as if God said, hey, they're still alive, they're still over there, but you're gonna be free internally and they'll never be able to take that away from you. It's not as if they, God said, hey, they're gonna be far away from you. No, their freedom wasn't theoretical, it was actual. They got to see it. The text emphasizes, we're gonna see in a second, that they saw it. They saw their enemies dead on the shore of the Red Sea. And what's fascinating is that their first response is to sing. Their first response is to sing. They could have done a lot of different things. They could have thrown a party. They could have said, hey, it's been a long couple hundred years. Take a day off and chill. They could have done that. They could have done a lot of different things. But their first thing is, no, we need to sing. It's the first thing they do. I mean, Moses, the first thing is, all right, guys, first act as leader, we're going to sing some songs together. Weird call, Moses, got it, okay? Like, and they sing about God to God. It's fascinating. They sing about the greatness of God to God. Their seeing his salvation caused them to sing towards God. Look at Exodus 14, 30. You're going to see this, this parallel. It says, Thus the Lord, right before Exodus 15, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw, they saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then 15.1, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. It's their natural response. They see salvation, sing. Natural response. It's fascinating, too, that God didn't command them to sing. 
It wasn't as if God said, all right, they're all dead. Everyone stand up and you're going to sing to me right now whether you like it or not. It's not what God did. Like an angry parent, you will be grateful and you will be excited. You know, like, I've said that to my kids. You will be happy. Like, we've done that. We're having fun. Like, I've done that. God doesn't do that. God doesn't have to. He doesn't have to say, stand up and sing. Why? Because when you see his salvation, it makes you want to sing. When you see it, it makes you want to sing. What happens is it begins to do something in you. It's not about the song necessarily. What it's about is what it did in them. That all of a sudden they found in themselves, it's seeing God's great power and love for them. It did something in them where they began to have gratitude. They began to have love. They began to have emotion stir inside of them. So songs were the natural thing that flowed out of that. And that's the reason why songs have always been vital to worshiping God. The reason songs have always been a vital part of worshiping God is because songs uniquely draw out and express what you feel for God. Songs are this unique thing about them where they can bring out and express and draw out things that you feel. The best songs are not those that try to take something and put it in you to make you feel something. The songs that have moved you in your life, like in a deep significant way, not just songs you like. We all like dumb songs that are stupid. Like we all like those dumb poppy songs, whatever. The songs that move you, they draw something out. Not just the words, the rhythm, the melody, the rhyme, the words, it draws something out of you. It, it makes you go, I, that's my experience. It helps me express it. Those are my aspirations and it helps me sing them. The unique nature of song is it draws something out of you. I, a good example of this when I was in the midst of uh, the relational trauma of dating in high school, this is big for me, okay? Uh, dating in high school is terrible. If it was good for you, big deal, okay? Terrible for me, okay? Um, terrible for me. Always a good, the pretty girl's best friend, awesome. Um, I'm married, love you, Lauren, you're the best. Uh, but when I, was, when I would have the teenage heartache, I had two go-to bands. One band, some of you guys may know if you're a certain age, but other band, you, everyone will know. The first band was Third Eye Blind. A lot of third eye blind, you guys know who they are. A lot of singing, some tears in my eyes, third eye blind. But the other song that was my go-to, this was like if it was heartache was, was intense, deep, real, as much as a 17-year-old could feel that, was U2. You know where I'm going. Someone, someone just mocked me over there. Um, you know where I'm going, with or without you, okay? The number of times that I drove home at 10 and 2, tears in my eyes, Shouting that song is embarrassing, okay? Just the broody melody of it. I'm, so, what the, what the, I'm just screaming it, like off tune. Like it, it. Now, why did that, and, and don't mock me, you've had a similar experience, maybe, I don't know, but I've had that multiple times, especially in high school with dating, okay? Here's what's crazy about that song for me, though. It didn't make me sad. I was already sad it drew it out. Right? Songs, the great ones, they don't put something in you. They draw something out of you. And for me, it helped me express the sadness that I felt. Why? Because songs have a unique way of drawing that out of us. And so when they begin to sing, it's not primarily about the song. It's about what's happening inside of them, and they can't be quiet about it. So the song is a natural expression of what they've seen God do for them. When you see God act in powerful ways on your behalf, something happens inside of you. 
That's why the church has always, that's why we as a church continue to write songs. You want to know why? Because we keep seeing God move in history. We keep seeing God save people. We keep seeing God do spectacular things, heal people, save, I mean, forgive people, reconcile marriages, do all these amazing things. And so we have to write songs because what's happening inside of us when we see God move, that's why they're singing. It's not about the songs, it's about what's happening inside of their hearts and saying, I can't believe God is as great as he says he is. But for this people and this worship, it's short-lived. It's short-lived for them. So they have this incredible moment. This, I mean, imagine this song being sung on the shores of the Red Sea. Everyone's into it. So imagine like everyone's hands raised, everyone's excited. But very shortly after that song, this people, they find this worship replaced by shame and fear. Really quickly, it's replaced by shame and fear. So you're going to see in the next coming weeks when we go through the book of Exodus, you're going to see the people of Israel, they really thought that the biggest issue in their lives were the Egyptians. That's what they thought. They thought, okay, once they're gone, then life will be great. We'll finally have everything we've wanted. And they find out, oh, taking away those enemies was just the first step. It wasn't the last one. They begin to realize, uh-oh, the problem is deeper than our oppressors. And little did they know that God was getting them ready for something else, but little did they know that the Red Sea wasn't ultimately about them. Little did they know that what God was doing in the destruction of their enemies was just a foreshadowing of how he would destroy our enemies one day. That this little story, the Old Testament references again and again and again and again, was getting us ready for the real story of Jesus Christ conquering all of our enemies. Little did they know that their little worship service that happened by the Red Sea was a preview of all the songs that you and I would sing over the destruction of our enemies of sin, Satan, and death. They couldn't have known that, but that's what they were pointing to. Because when Jesus Christ came, he came to destroy our enemies. Let me give you two texts to show, maybe you've never thought about this before, thought about Jesus in this way. He came to make war on our enemies. Let me read you two texts. Don't turn there. But I want to show you how he came to make war on sin and Satan and Satan and death. 1 John 3, 8. It says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, sin, and Satan. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. This is about death. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, And deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. And to deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. In that song, and Moses saying, he calls the Lord a man of war. The same is true of Jesus Christ. He's a man of war. He came to bring peace to his people, but not to our enemies. He came to destroy all of them and all of their implications and all of their tentacles that are in every nook and cranny of this life. He came to eradicate them and destroy them. Because under those tyrants of sin, Satan, and death, even your best moments 
when you don't have Christ, even your best moments of joy are going to be swallowed up eventually by shame and fear. Eventually. Even the happiest moments of your life will be swallowed up eventually by shame and by fear. And Jesus came to bring a kingdom where shame and fear have no place. That's why he came. To get rid of them and give you his kingdom because there are few things more miserable to feel than shame. There are few things more miserable than being ashamed of yourself. That sense, that feeling that you're awful. That sense, that feeling that you don't deserve anything good, any blessing, any love, any joy. That sense that you're stained. That is a miserable thing to live in. And every single person in this room, whether you let it on or not, we experience shame in all sorts of ways and for all sorts of reasons. And at the bedrock of all the shame that we experience is our sin and the Satan who tempts us to sin. Below all of it is this sin of ours and this rejection of God of ours and in the world. And so that every time when we go against God's word, we know inherently depth, in the depths of who we are, I'm not made for this. We know inherently that in the depths of who I am, I'm not made for this. When you get sinned against by somebody, shame floods in because you know they should never treat me that way. Shame comes from sin. And without Jesus, the only ways to deal with the shame that you feel is to either numb it or excuse it. It's the only way to deal with it, is to numb it or excuse it. Now, the one thing that our society and our culture has pegged rightly, one of the things that our culture right now that is on a crusade for, which is a, in, one, in one instance is a good thing, is our culture has rightly recognized that living in shame is miserable. Our culture gets that. It's a good thing. They're right. Living in shame and hating yourself is miserable. And no human being can flourish in it. But without Jesus, all you can do is numb it or excuse it. So one way you can do it is you can numb it, numb your shame with all sorts of ineffective medicines. So you can use alcohol. You can use drugs, legal or illegal. You can go that route. You, you can numb your shame through pursuing a career and being really, really, really busy and getting success and quiet it that way. You can do it with relationships, with family, with sex. You can numb it through those means. You can even numb your shame with religion. You can even numb your shame by filling your calendar up with religious activity after religious activity, spiritual activity after spiritual activity to keep that shame under wraps and never deal with it. You can numb it in all sorts of ways. That's one way. You can also excuse it. This one's pretty prominent right now in our context is instead of feeling shame for sin, we begin to lie to ourselves and say, God, rejecting God isn't shameful. We begin to lie to ourselves and saying, no, sin isn't shameful. God would never want me to feel shame. So even if I reject him and go against him, there's no way I should feel ashamed of that. And so we get teachers and pastors and leaders who will just justify and rationalize everything we want to say, no, rejecting God is not shameful. So we excuse it. But when you excuse it, you're not getting rid of it. You're just renaming it. It just manifests itself in different areas of your life. So you say, okay, I don't need to feel shame for this thing anymore. 
Well, guess what? You're going to feel shame somewhere else. You can't get rid of it. And Satan, the whole time, Satan does not care how you deal with your, your shame so long as you don't go to Jesus. If you want to be moral or immoral, he does not care. Just don't go to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus can deal with shame like no one else can. Jesus can deal with your shame like no one else can because he doesn't numb it. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't even leave you in it. He actually dies for it. He comes to you in your shame and he says, I'm going to take it on myself. I'm going to take it on myself. And he gives you a new identity not rooted in shame. Think about this for a second. Jesus never experienced shame. Think about that. Not once. He never sinned, so he never experienced shame. Let me give you a practical way to think about that. Jesus never hated himself. Think about how much of your life and my life is spent hating yourself. That that right there about Jesus boggles my mind personally because of how much of my story is self-loathing without him. Jesus never wanted to be somebody else. How often are your fantasies about being someone else, somewhere else, doing something else? How much of our lives are spent daydreaming about not being us because we don't want to be us? Jesus never experienced that shame. And on the cross, he said, I'm going to take that identity rooted and defined by hating self, and I'm going to become that. And I'm going to give you my life that never experienced it to be defined by God's love and God's presence and God's nearness. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, for our sake, God the Father made him, God the Son, to be sin." to experience shame. Who he never knew sin, he never knew shame. So that in him we who all that we have known without God is shame and hating self might become the righteousness of God with no need to cower and no need to hate self because who you are is rooted in Jesus and not in you. Jesus came to free us from shame so you don't have to live The church should be the people who the city looks to and says, how do you get rid of the shame? We shouldn't be people who hide it secretly. We should be a people who go to Jesus and realize who I am is not defined by the way I feel. It's defined by who Jesus is. Because when Jesus died, that was the death of sin and Satan and the shame that seeks to define us. He conquered that enemy. He also conquered death. There, There are a few things also that's probably more uncomfortable for us to talk about than death. Um, it's never been easy for any culture, but especially ours. I, I think it's especially hard for us to talk about death because we have seen incredible advances in technology and in science, and we've seen things that used to be insurmountable obstacles for past generations become routine for us. Like we have indoor plumbing. In the past, I would say, what is that? I want it. Like that. Things that used to kill people now is routine checkups. I mean, I just had LASIK eye surgery. I had lasers in my eyeballs, okay? The things that we've seen technology and science do is incredible. I mean, it's a, good, it's a gift from God. Don't think that's outside of God's grace. That's God's grace to us to learn all these things about his creation and how it works. But here's what happens. We, so what it makes us feel, the, the psyche of, a, of ours is everything's conquerable. 
we, we really think, okay, we'll, we'll eventually find a way to conquer everything, but we don't know how to deal with an unbeatable foe like death. Everything's getting better, but this thing still looms in the background of your life. Death is like this silent character or actor in the background of your mind who just stands there silently just waiting, and you know he's there. You can't do anything about it. He just stands there casting a shadow onto everything as much as you may be happy, as much as you may be not thinking of him or it. There it is standing in the back of your life saying, just waiting. No ability to conquer it, no ability to do anything with it. That's why we have so many fears. We fear that test result. We fear that phone call. We fear our future. We fear those final moments. We rarely talk about death. It's almost taboo. But when Jesus came, Jesus came, he walked towards the things that terrify us. If you want to know where Jesus is, the things that cause us to run away in terror are the things he walks towards confidently for us. That's why Jesus should be king. He sees terror, he sees death, he sees hell, he walks towards it when all of us are running away. He walks towards it, and not for himself, but for us, and he experienced death for you. He didn't have to. He got to feel what it was like to die. I mean, I think about it all the time. What's that moment going to be like when you finally breathe your last? And what's incredible about Jesus, though he existed, he's God from eternity past, he didn't have to experience the prospect of death. He chose to. You want to know why? Because he wanted to be a faithful leader to us. Jesus didn't want any part of your life that he hadn't experienced. So he breathed his last and he felt what it was like to close your eyes for the last time. But he knew, Jesus knew, that we needed more than his empathy to get rid of fear. Like we needed more than him just going, I know what it feels like. Great, I'm still scared. Still scared. Jesus knew we needed a way forward so death wouldn't have the final word. So on the third day after he died, he showed us the way forward. On the third day after he died, he showed us the way forward. And he, he, kept, he resurrected with this body that's free from decay, free from death forever. And now he shows us that actually the last word in your life will not be death. It'll be his word that says rise. It'll be his word that tells you to get up. Because he was the first to be raised from the dead, but not the last. Look at Colossians 1.18. Talking about Jesus, it says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the first born from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Look at that, that phrase. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn. It means he's the first, he will not be the last. He's the first, he's going forward for us as our older brother, so all his little brothers and sisters in faith can go, that's what my story will be like. He's the firstborn, he's showing us God's new creation. He doesn't just delay death. And Jesus doesn't accept death. He tramples over it. He tramples on top of it so that we can now know all the threats of death are hollow. They're all hollow. There's no fear for us because Christ has the final word. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15. This, is, this text is hope for every person in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. Paul, describing the resurrection, says this. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 
Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of your enemies are gone. They're gone. Sin, Satan, death, done away with through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every single one of them. And so when you see that, that's the victory. It says, thanks be to God who gave us this victory through Jesus Christ. When you see the victory, you'll find something happening in you that happened to Moses in Israel. You'll find something stirring in you that happened to Moses in Israel. You'll find yourself going, I can't believe God's that good. I can't believe he's everything he promised he would be. You'll find yourself wanting to sing songs to him about him. You'll find yourself saying, I want to sacrifice for him. You'll find yourself saying, I I actually for the first time don't want to sin. You'll find yourself trusting him when everything is falling apart. Why? Because you've seen his great salvation. And that's why, that's why we should never be content and never be content with a loveless and lifeless response to God. You should never be content with that. You should never be content because Christianity is not some dead religion that's interested in you just knowing its trivia and knowing its moral boundaries. I don't know your experience in church in this room, but I know what can happen is people think Christianity is like every other religion. It's this old book. You just know its trivia, know some facts about it, and know the moral boundaries so you don't get in trouble, and that's basically it. Wrong. Wrong. Who would want to be part of that? Christianity orbits around the center of God working on our behalf and us being in awe of him. Us looking, I can't believe, he conquered death for me? I can't believe it. I don't have shame anymore. Being in awe and then in your awe, placing him above everything and saying, you should get everything. Why? Because I've seen your victory. I've seen your victory. My very first uh, position in ministry was the college pastor here at the Austin Stone. I was 23. And I remember the first trip that I ever led was to a, a conference in Atlanta. And in the conference in Atlanta, it's this massive conference. They had this breakout session for ministry, college ministry leaders. And so they had these like 3,000 people. You had these groups of 10. And I remember for me, I was brand new to ministry. I didn't know what I was doing. So I was looking forward to getting to know other ministry leaders who were older than me and more seasoned than me to help me understand what I should do. And so on the last day of the conference, you know, after a couple of days of getting to know each other, people started to be more vulnerable. And I remember there was this woman, the last day she shared, she said, she, and she was sad about this. She wasn't, she wasn't saying it was no big deal. She was sad. She said, I don't have excitement for Jesus anymore. She sat there and almost tears in her eyes. I remember she said, I just don't have joy or passion anymore. I just feel lifeless towards him. So she said this and kind of was quiet in the group and, like it always is when someone's really vulnerable and brave like that. And so you're sitting there, and I was the youngest one there, so I thought, okay, this is my opportunity to sit back and just watch. It's not my job to speak up or speak a lot, which is my tendency. I thought, okay, I'll forego that. Be quiet. And here's what I expected to hear. I expected in that circle of 10 people, men and women who've been doing all ministry more than long, longer than me, I expected them to empathize with her. I expected them to tell stories of how they've been in spiritual droughts and seasons and to say, hey, 
I know what it feels like. I know what it's like to have your passion for Jesus be down a little bit, but then say, but that's not the end of the story. I expected them to tell her, like, I get it, but it's not how it ends for you. I expected somebody to have a wise word, an old, older person, maybe with the sage wisdom, and say, hey, you know, as you age, your expression of emotion and zeal and passion changes. It doesn't mean it's less, it just means it's different. As you grow in age and in the faith, your emotional tank and energy is gonna change and morph. It doesn't mean you love him less, it means you're expressing it differently. And then I expected somebody to at least say, you're right to be concerned. I expected somebody, expecting somebody to say, you're right to be concerned because Jesus never loses his luster, our hearts just grow dull. So who knows what's going on, but it's a sign of brokenness somewhere. You could be sick, you could be in sin, I don't know, but it's a sign of brokenness somewhere. Now, that's what I expected to hear. That's what I expected to hear. And I remember, I remember the response to her crying about how she lacks love and passion and zeal for Jesus. Here was the counsel that just happens. It literally told her, I remember this verbatim, yeah, when you first start loving, following Jesus, it's really exciting, but after that, it just fades. That's just kind of the way it is. People nod their heads going, yeah, that's true. I just sat there just so sad. I, I mean, I remember I would oscillate between wanting to scream at them and wanting to cry. Because I remember saying, you're wrong. That's not what Jesus is like. It's not you get around him and eventually he gets boring. No, our hearts just grow dull. That when you see what he's done for you, your heart will be filled up with love. That trying to fix it by saying, I'm going to love him more and be more diligent and be more disciplined and I'm gonna make promises that I'm never gonna keep. It's not the way you stir your heart up. You don't make yourself love somebody by saying, love them. You have to look at what he's done. Look at Israel. They just saw what he did and they wanted to sing. Because when you see the lifeless bodies of shame and fear and sin and Satan and death on the shore of God's love for you, your heart will begin to fill with joy. Because what's incredible, think about that scene. We're almost done. Think about that scene. Pharaoh and his armies had been nothing but a source of fear, pain, heartache and shame for Moses and his people. And all of a sudden, in God's victory, they become opportunities to sing. What God does for you in Christ, he takes all the worst parts of life and they become opportunities for worship. Think about this. Before Jesus, when you sinned, the only end was shame. When you have Jesus, even when you fail and you sin, it becomes an opportunity not to sit in shame, but to worship and say, I can't believe Jesus even paid for this. I can't believe that this doesn't define who I am. I can't believe I have no shame because of him, though I deserve it. Your sin becomes an opportunity to worship God now. When you look at your life and you experience heartache of loss and pain, those things that just ended on, okay, that's just the way life is, let's just numb it. Now it becomes an opportunity to look to God and say, he's so dependable, he's so faithful. When everyone lets me down, he will be faithful. So even when I get let down, I get to praise God for how good he is. 
and now even in death. Even the thing that terrifies us most, now even death becomes an opportunity to say, it used to terrify me, now it's the way home. Now it's the way home. What used to be avoided at all cost is now the way home. I can see Jesus finally. What God has done in Christ, the victory that he's given, we have to look at it all the time. They had the visual of the dead Egyptians. We have the visual of Jesus on the cross and an empty tomb. And we have to think on his work and remember what it means. Because even the worst parts of life that this world, by the way, has no answer for. We just excuse it and don't look past it, but the world has no answer for any of these things. In Christ and his victory become opportunities for us to love and worship God because God has given us victory over every single one of them. I'll read to you Exodus 15, 1 through 3 again. In verse 18, he says, I will sing to the Lord. I've seen his victory. I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are like no one else. And God, we just right now in this moment, God, would you give us the faith to be honest about the areas where shame defines us? Would you give us faith to be honest and courage to be honest about the places where we are fearful of losing something, fearful of losing health or life or family, finances, God, would you give us faith for us to say, God, we've had a loveless, lifeless response to you for far too long. God, would you save us from playing religious games and attending services and thinking that's what we need? How would you give us faith to see what you've done in Christ and help us be in awe of it? God, for those of us in here who have only heard about your greatness from afar, would you give us faith to trust you for the very first time today? God, would you give me and the rest of us grace to trust you for the millionth time? God, I do not want to think that I have to live in shame. God, I don't want to believe the lie that fear is just the way it is for me. God, I want to believe And I want to trust and I want to know and I want us to know as a people what it's like to not have your sins define you. To commit the thing that you hate yourself most for and for Jesus to say, it's gone. I took it away. Worship. To see the things that terrify us and go, Jesus walked through them and conquered them and he leads me now. None will keep him from me. God, this city needs a people who are free from shame and fear to show them what it's like under the 
leadership of King Jesus. God, would you make us that kind of people? Would you make us that kind of church? The freedom we get to have and the confidence we get to have is like no other. That we would never give credit to ourselves, but we'd always give credit and worship and praise to you. So God, even now, would you give us faith to sing? Even if it's aspirational, God, even if we, we want it to be true, God, let us sing because it is. God, we ask all these things in the mighty name of the victorious and risen King Jesus. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand. Let's sing together.